Welcome to the FNL Podcast. My name is Vicky Denton and I'm your host. Our guest today is Eugene Tan. Eugene is Senior Advisor of GSX Partners, a consulting company focused on solutions that work in Asia. He has more than 30 years experience before he retired as BP's Director of Global Supply Chain for Asia and Pacific. He was also Vice Chairman for the Asian Lubricants Industry Association, which was established to form a voice for advocacy for lubricants players in Asia and Pacific. Before BP, he worked at Shell, where he developed broad end-to-end experience covering supply chain, product quality and advocacy, e-commerce, retail and commercial business, refinery operations, technology, and supply trading. Welcome to FNL Podcast, Eugene. Thank you, Vicky. So uh, it's been a while since I've talked to you. Uh, tell me a little bit about GSX Partners and what you're doing. Let me start with myself, and then I'll go on to GXS Partners. So as you know, I retired a couple of years ago to see the world, especially when I was young and fit enough to complete my bucket list, which comprised some of the more exotic and extreme destinations. However, with COVID shutting down the world, I decided to go back to work a bit earlier than originally planned. And I felt that the best way to leverage my experience was to go into consulting. For the last 20 years of my career, I was responsible for Asia, from the Middle East to Oceania, and up north to China, Japan, and Korea. Consequently, I have deep industrial experience and understand the strategic challenges of succeeding in Asia and what it takes to develop effective teams and operationalize those strategies. So when I decided to join consulting, I wanted to look for a firm which was aligned with my capability. And I found GXS Partners to be the perfect fit. GXS Partners is a consulting company that focuses on strategic advice and business operations in Asia. Unlike other consulting companies that may be staffed by people who joined consulting straight out of university, all of us here at GXX Partners comprise people who started out in industry and then left at very senior positions to join consulting. Consequently, all of us have deep management and industry experience and leadership exposure across Asia. Some of us went into consulting in some of the larger consulting companies like ADL, McKinsey, and BCG. And some were partners there before they left to join GXS partners. And so as a consulting company, we really understand the geopolitical and cultural challenges in Asia and can develop strategies that work here and are able to translate those strategies 
into operations on the ground. What does GSX stand for, Eugene? So the GXS is actually derived from a Chinese pinyin initials of Gongxinxi, which means keystone. It's essentially the belief that, you know, it's the element of construction which holds everything together. And it's the link between strategy and operations. So as, as I said, you know, we are very, because of our deep industry background, not only are we able to come up with the right strategies to work in Asia, but we're actually capable of implementing it and making sure that it can be delivered. And so that's why we came up with this uh, title to reflect how we bring everything together. So in terms of opportunities, Eugene, what kind of opportunities do you see in Asia for the lubricants industry at this point in time, post-pandemic? Thanks, Vicky. That's a great question. Now, there's a lot of excitement around pure electric or fuel cell vehicles. If you look at Tesla, at one point, it was worth more than the rest of the traditional car companies combined. There are good reasons for this. Climate change is real, and governments and consumers are concerned. The latest IPCC report on climate change this year confirmed that global warming is caused by human activity. And soon, from the 31st of October, the UN Climate Change Conference, COP26, will commence in Scotland with the expectation that countries will make further commitments to reduce greenhouse gases and other pollutants. And already in Europe, many countries have already announced rules and regulations banning the internal combustion engine from sometime between 2030 and 2040. And recent publications also reflect that even hybrid electric vehicles, those cars with an internal combustion engine to help recharge the batteries, they have also been classified as not sustainable. And many car companies have announced that they would stop manufacturing internal combustion engines at the same time. So you can see that everything is coming together to push for an end to the internal combustion engine, certainly from the lens of the West. And even among the oil companies, both Shell and BP have announced that they will become net zero emissions by 2050. Recently, in the Netherlands, Shell lost a court case brought on by NGOs to force them to commit to more stringent targets by 2030. However, we believe that Asia will soon become the hub for internal combustion engine vehicles, whether in the current traditional sense or in the more advanced 
and fuel-efficient hybrid electric vehicles. And the reason we believe this is because we believe that based on the circumstances in Asia, it is actually the more environmentally effective solution as mobility needs develop. And the key reason for this is the source of electricity. In answering whether new vehicles should have internal combustion engines, whether in the traditional sense or in hybrid electric vehicles, or whether they should be pure electric vehicles, which is the position taken in the West and in Europe, we have to look at the power generation mix. We have to recognize that coal power generation is a significant percentage of the installed capacity in Asia and that many new coal power plants are still being constructed and all these new plants have a operating life which, uh, for about 30 years in order to get payback. Over the last 20 years, coal power generation capacity in China increased five times. It also increased by two and a half times in India and doubled in ASEAN. In Europe, renewable energy comprises more than 35% of total power generation, whereas in Asia, it is less than 5% and most of that centered in China. When you look at China and India today, it is regularly reported in the news that despite the aspirations to reduce dependence on coal, they actually have to get access to more coal and to increase coal power generation as they're currently short of power. Furthermore, if you look at transmission losses, that's getting the electricity from the power station to the consumer, Transmission losses in Asia, for example, India, is around 20%. Most of Asia in, are in the high teens, compared to losses of only around 6% in Europe. So when you combine both the percentage of coal power generation and transmission losses, we believe that you need to solve the electricity generation and transmission challenges first before increasing the demand on electricity by promoting electric vehicles over traditional cars or hybrids. Of course, then the question is whether or not electricity power generation challenge can be solved in the next 10 years so that EVs can be promoted in the 30s to 40s. Well, post-pandemic, most governments, globally in fact, not just in Asia, are very budget challenged. Taxes are down, spend is up, and governments will have to be very careful where they allocate their funds.
we do not believe that Asian governments have the funds to mothball and replace existing coal power generation capacity before their useful life is over. And even foreign aid to Asia, for example, UK, who is sponsoring COP26, is actually going to cut its foreign aid. Furthermore, we believe that the governments will actually have to focus on installing new capacity to meet industrial demand growth. And so we doubt that with already that huge demand upon the government to meet existing power demand growth, we doubt that they will exacerbate the electricity imbalance by encouraging EV mobility to the detriment of normal industrial requirements. So, at this point, I'd just like to reiterate and re-emphasize that we believe climate change is real and action has been taken to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. But, being both pragmatic and practical, we also believe that it's actually better for the environment in Asia to continue to use the internal combustion engine hopefully in the form of hybrid engines in the foreseeable future. So, as a result, we'd like to emphasize that we believe there's going to be a pivot to Asia in that the West will reduce investment, R&D, and manufacture of the internal combustion engine over the next 10 years, whereas Asia will then become the center for demand, manufacture, and technology of these same engines for mobility. Okay, my question to you, Eugene, is China, I believe, generates 70% of its electricity from coal at the moment, and yet the largest number of electric vehicles are in China. So what's going to happen there? What's the scenario there? Is it basically only the, the, the first-tier cities that are electrified and then the rest of China is not going to be electrified? So, you know, China is not homogeneous. It has a massive population and different challenges in different provinces and cities. So there will be different incentives and rules and regulations depending on whether you're a tier one, tier two, or tier three city, or whether you're a rural province. I mean, as a reflection of its size, despite China being the largest vehicle market in the world, with 38% of new registrations, actually only about 100 in 1,000 Chinese own a vehicle, which is much less than 
America, for example, with 800 uh, in a thousand. And the same applies for electric vehicles. So despite China being the largest EV market in the world, the EVs are actually limited only to the major cities. All this reflects that in China, with central planning, the government, both from Beijing, the central government, and the local government, city governments, can implement targeted rules and change regulations rapidly. And whilst the government subsidy for electric vehicles were available throughout China, the qualification criteria for a vehicle to qualify for a subsidy in terms of power and range actually meant that those cars were very expensive and the subsidy in itself actually was not sufficient according to certain studies to encourage people to register electric vehicles there were also many other factors which were specific to each city for example access to registration licenses and, and other incentives which made them attractive then in the tier one cities other examples of uh, localized regulations to meet specific needs including for example the banning of motorcycles in favor of e-bikes almost overnight actually in tier one cities and recently because of congestion suddenly the banning of even e-bikes in Beijing so China is not homogeneous it's not one-size-fits-all but they can move very rapidly so just recently Beijing announced that they would stop investing in coal-fired electricity generation stations but as mentioned earlier, we have to recognize that the installed base of coal-powered stations is actually quite substantial. And that overall power generating capacity is currently a limiting factor. So until they can balance power generating capacity with incremental demand driven by EVs, we expect a moderation in EV penetration, certainly outside the major cities. In all cases, the regulations were put in place to address an issue which that city needed to resolve. So if pollution is not an issue in the rural and less polluted parts of China, there would be no incentive to move to EVs or replace the coal-powered stations in those provinces. And so we doubt that China would ban internal combustion engines as a one-size-fits-all, uh, especially if the internal combustion engine were better suited for the province or location at hand, taking into account pollution, local needs and abilities, including disposable income. So how do you reconcile public policy and reality? I think you will have to distinguish between public policy and public aspiration. For example, 
Malaysia just announced the 12th Malaysia plan, but many commentators noted that in examining the goals announced, the implementation would require further consideration and planning. Take the carbon tax as an example. A climate activist said that the government would have to make sure that it did not become an additional financial burden on the ordinary people. Many countries in Asia still subsidize mobility fuels. And this is certainly a social stability issue. There have been riots, and even more so an election issue. So if they cannot stop subsidizing fuels, what hope is there that they can increase the hurdle to mobility, increasing the cost by insisting or legislating the adoption of EVs. In addition to the existing drivers on the road today, we have to recognize that there are many more people who aspire to own a car. If you look at the past 10-15 years, Asia has been the largest growing car park in the world. And this has been driven by China and some of the countries in ASEAN. But there are so many more countries. Asia has the largest population of emerging middle class in need of mobility. Today, 80% of the motorcycles are in Asia, primarily India, Indonesia, Vietnam, and as incomes rise, these motorcyclists will want to upgrade to cars in order to improve mobility. In terms of the level of growth potential, the number of cars on the road, for reference, in 2014, in the United States, there were 800 cars per thousand people, and in Europe, 600 cars per thousand people. Whereas in Asia, there are only about 100 cars per thousand. This ranges from a low of about 20 cars per thousand in India and up to 400 per thousand in Malaysia. The tipping point in which the growth of cars increases exponentially is around 5,000 GDP per capita. Although India, Indonesia, Vietnam are not yet at that tipping point, they are very close. And as because their populations are so large, as they reach this tipping point, the number of cars that will be registered there will be incredibly significant. Just look at China, for example. China is the largest growing car population in the world, contributing to about 38% of new car registrations. And yet, 
it is only at 100 cars per thousand. So what is clear is that there will be a significant increase in the demand of cars for Asia. However, unlike China, we doubt that the Asian governments have either the appetite or certainly post-COVID, the budget for the funds to subsidize electrification, whether in the form of e-bikes replacing motorcycles or EVs replacing the internal combustion engine cars. Furthermore, the infrastructure required to provide charging stations will require significant investment. So, recognizing the difference in GDP between developing Asia and developed Asia, like Singapore, where the Singapore government can already legislate and promote electric vehicles through subsidies, we believe this would not be high on the priority of the developing nation governments. If you look at power generation alone, the governments have enough challenges to continue to invest in power generation to meet the growing needs of the population and their industries without exacerbating the situation by accelerating the demand for electricity with electric vehicles. And so on a balance, we believe that the governments would direct their budgets more towards cleaner and hopefully renewable power generation and even better replacing aging coal power stations and stop investing in new coal power stations and mitigate the impact of the increasing mobility needs by legislating emission and efficiency standards which would drive, for example, hybrid electric vehicles. Yeah, I, I agree with you. The question though, Eugene, is it's not politically correct at this time to espouse internal combustion engines, especially in Europe. So I think for the multinational oil company, um, who especially those companies that have made commitments to be net zero emissions by 2050, they can't be seen as saying one thing in Europe and doing something else in Asia. I agree. And as a result of that, I think one of the big challenges which integrated oil majors or national oil companies will have to do is get a perspective of what their position is towards the lubricants business centers. The reality is, as I said in the beginning, the West are looking at EV coming in rapidly with both the general population and government incentives coming together to drive a rapid reduction 
by 2030 to 2040, where no more new uh, internal combustion engines will be registered. But you cannot see that in Asia because of the challenges I, I described. And so what I believe is going to happen is that the lubricants industry, especially that focused on internal combustion engines, will have to pivot to Asia. It then comes to a question whether or not the integrated oil majors and the national oil companies decide to continue to support the lubricant business centers in, in re-establishing themselves, their R&D, their manufacturing in Asia, or they look to divest it to other companies. I think it's going to be a, this pivot to Asia will drive very exciting times over the next decade as companies have to decide their own positioning versus where the demand is. Let's get deeper into the discussion of, uh, you know, emissions. So you have scope one and scope two and scope three. Uh, scope three, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, applies to emissions uh, by the users of your product. So as an example, lubricant company produces an engine oil. I buy it. I produce the emissions. That's scope three. Uh, in that case, if I were a base oil producer, I would be reporting my scope one and scope two. And if I also blend lubricants, I the, the formulated lubricant that I will be producing won't be counted again because that's already been counted as a base oil. Is that correct? Then in that case, a lubricant company that produces base oil and also manufactures formulated lubricants would be emission-wise in a better position than a company that buys base oil and just produces lubricants. So I guess what I'm driving at is if you were a company that produces base oil and formulated products, you're much better off in your lubricant business than if you were a buyer of base oil. Uh, what do you think of that argument, Eugene? Scope three is a particularly challenging measure, especially as it's difficult to scope it without the proper definitions, tools, regulations, and processes. Because it measures use and the consequence of use, it contributes to the highest percentage of the oil industry's carbon footprint. There are commentators who talk about 90% would come from scope three. It's certainly an issue with the fuel produced, as greenhouse gases are certainly produced when you burn fuel or you run the engine. However, I would focus on the fact that because the purpose of lubricants is to reduce friction and improve performance, lubricants in itself actually reduces carbon emissions. So it comes back to whether the international oil companies can put forward the argument 
that lubrication improves their scope 3 performance rather than it being used against them. However, we recognize that these international oil companies have, especially those which are listed, have activist investors, pressures from NGOs, and there will be a lot of scrutiny in this area. For example, the Shell Court case I spoke about earlier, they are actually to include scope 3 measurements in their emission reduction commitments by 2030. So, yeah, it is quite a significant challenge. If you accept, however, the argument that lubricants actually improves uh, performance of engines and therefore reduces emissions, we still have to recognize that within scope 3, there will be challenges with regards to lubricants packaging and how spent lubricants are handled. But we believe that this can be handled or managed through improved packaging and lubricants recycling. And governments can and should legislate in these areas. Coming back to the lubricants, the quality of lubricants used in Asia is actually not in line with the vehicle park and the technology uh, used by those vehicles. The percentage of mineral lubricants is very high relative to synthetic and the ratio of low saps, mid saps, high saps lubricants is also not in line with the vehicle park. And so lubricant companies and OEMs should focus on educating the consumer to use the right lubricants in order to protect the vehicle management systems, the particulate filters, and ensure that the right lubricants are used to maintain performance throughout the vehicle's life cycle. So, consequently, we hope that the oil companies can argue that they are improving performance and reducing emissions relative to today's Asian baseline. And furthermore, if they work closely with the OEMs and even drive, for example, uh, greater adoption of hybrid electric vehicles. We believe that the future footprint should be measurably better than today's baseline. And how different would the situation be for independent lubricant companies? I think it would depend on whether that independent lubricant company is being exposed to the same pressure as the international oil company. We believe that independent lubricant companies and Asian national oil companies would have a higher likelihood of accepting that the internal combustion engine supports the development of mobility in Asia at the lowest environmental impact. As I said earlier, all this is due to the fact that the use of coal in Asia for power generation results in the electric vehicle being more polluting than a petrol-driven one. 
even more so when engine technologies improve or if hybrid electric vehicles are adopted. As the OEMs stop manufacturing in Europe, we believe that they would either joint venture if they haven't already with Asian companies or divest their internal combustion engine divisions to Asia. The establishment of OEMs based in Asia with their manufacturing and R&D could create opportunities for lubricant companies who support the internal combustion engine in Asia. They should establish their vehicle lubricants R&D centers in Asia, partner with these OEMs to continue to do the research and development, and develop the engines and associated lubricants that will drive even greater efficiency in order to improve the environment relative to the current baseline. And so we believe that the difference in approach and perspectives will certainly drive different strategies between international oil companies, national oil companies, and independent lubricant companies. And so there could be all kinds of opportunities, including mergers and acquisitions. So basically, what you're saying is what the majors are going to be faced with is do they still see a benefit in participating in the lubricants industry or do they just simply divest? And practically all majors are major players in Asia, all of them. They have invested in the business. They have built huge manufacturing facilities in Asia. They obviously did not see what's going on in Europe to be happening here, or maybe they did. And that's why the investments over the last 10 years has, have all been done in Asia. I mean, do you agree with that statement that, that they did see the writing on the wall? I mean, besides, of course, the growth in Asia has been outstripping North America and Europe. They've placed all of their capital expenditures in Asia, all their lubricant facilities in Indonesia, in Singapore, in China over the last 10 years. True. I mean, but um, I, I, I cannot say whether or not um, the perspective is there's, there's writing on the wall in Europe. What I will do say, say though, is that the investment in Asia, China, Indonesia, Singapore, is primarily driven by the reality that the growth has been in Asia. And as I said earlier, when you look at um, the growth which we've seen over the past 10, 20 years, it's going to continue because those huge populations in India, in Indonesia, they're, they're just on the cusp of reaching the middle income levels, which would drive a sudden explosion in mobility. So the answer to your question is that the investment in Asia was because of the growth in Asia. And our, our proposition is that the growth which we saw over the past 10 to 20 years is going to continue because more and more Asian countries and high population Asian countries are going to reach the level of income which will drive even more mobility requirements. Now, Eugene, you live in Singapore and Singapore is actually one 
of the few countries in Asia, I believe the only one in Asia that said they're going to be banning internal combustion engines. So, and you have all of this uh, huge manufacturing facility for lubricants in Singapore. What's going to happen to them? Singapore's refining is not built to serve Singapore. It's built to serve Asia. And so all these facilities, whether it's the refineries or the uh, base oil manufacturing or the base oil or the lubricants manufacturing will continue because of the need to serve Asia and the hub status which um, Singapore plays. I would add one caveat, and that is Singapore has also been focusing a lot more on other industries and not just the petrochemical. In fact, um, if you look at the conversations uh, which you have coming out of the ministers, Singapore is, is already pivoting, in my perspective, away from hydrocarbons to biotech, IT, and everything else. Okay. In fact, we also believe as GXS that Singapore's role as a petrochemical hub um, is rapidly being overtaken by China. So, because China's investment in refining in the petrochemical industry is actually go also going to drive a significant increase in capability in China. So that is also a interesting development, which we are monitoring. Eugene, um, as we um, wrap up our session, the big question in the room, I guess, is does the lubricants industry have a future? The answer we have is absolutely. Don't forget that internal combustion engine lubricants only forms half of the total lubricant demand. There's a lot more for industrial lubricants, for greases and everything else, which will, which will be required. That's number one. Number two, even in Europe and Americas, even if they move towards EVs in an accelerated pace by 2030, you will still have an existing car population, which will not stop driving overnight. And so there will still be a demand for the inter, uh, for internal combustion engine lubricants in Europe and America for the next 20 years. In Asia, because of what we've been talking all along, it will continue even longer. Plus, if, as I we believe, that it will be hybrid electric vehicles if we ever go away from pure ICE to be the future, there will still be a demand. And furthermore, as we drive for greater efficiency, when you talk about a future for the lubricants industry, it is not just a pure volume game. It is a value game. And the quality of the lubricants in Asia is going to improve dramatically and materially over time as we drive synthetics and the right uh, saps to meet the particulate filters and the requirements of these vehicles. And as I said before, the type of engines, will, there will continue to be investment in improving the efficiency of the engines and therefore the type of lubricants required. So it will be a quality game. 
it will be a value game. And I think Asia, as a result of all this, will become the future center for lubricants globally. Well, I think that's all the time we have, Eugene. Um, thank you for your perspective. I think it's very interesting. It definitely requires uh, uh, probably a follow-up at some point. Uh, maybe 10 years from now, we're going to see, you know, how how uh, spot on your projections are, you know, which companies decide to divest and which decide to stay in the business. Um, I think, I think that will be, it'll be a very interesting next 10 years for the lubricants industry. Thank you, Vicky. I agree. It was going to be a very interesting time. I wouldn't say 10 years though, because I think it's very important that we continue to monitor the regulations and um, the projections of, of the technology as they go forward over, over this next few years. I agree. Thank you so much for your time and have a great day, Eugene. Thank you very much, Vicky.